blessed. It's interesting, Ryan was bringing up that on Thursday, the, the 11th, that it has been one year since it's been declared a, a worldwide pandemic, and what a year it's been. And uh, I was looking back on my journal, because I journaled through this whole season, but I wrote back on March 19th, 2020, life right now in the world is living, like living in the twilight zone. Coronavirus is sweeping throughout the world. This is the kind of thing we saw in sci-fi horror flicks. They have declared it to be a worldwide pandemic. Uh, we are now in our third week. Right now, community social interaction is limited to no more than 25 people with social distance. Physical touch is out of the question. Grocery stores are open, but there's panic buying. The stores have sold out of pa toilet paper, flour, rice, pasta, canned goods, uh, sanitizers. Retirement homes and nursing homes are in lockdown. Hospitals are in lockdown. Businesses are closing down. Restaurants, bars, coffee shops are closed to the public. Takeout only. The Dow is down. People are being uh, laid off everywhere. People are encouraged to social distance. Fear and panic is spreading faster than the virus. And with the fear and isolation, only comes the isolation only feeds the fear. Churches are closed or mostly closed and extremely limited. Last week we had in our first online service, 35 people from among our elders and families were there, all at a distance. Last night, Wednesday, we had our first Wednesday service online. There were six people sitting in the sanctuary, all at a very healthy distance, and they were. They were like here, there, and all over. Um, this is the first time we've had a crisis that actually works to separate people. That was, to me, was one of the most outstanding things about this. Whoever thought there'd come something that would keep us apart, because um, we're always so much better together. Um, but this is what I wrote, God is still in control. And he still has the whole world in his hands. I believe he's doing something powerful. It's like God is sitting the world down and faith is being tested. Our values are being ex exposed. For some, they are growing. Others are going astray. But he's peeling off the outer veneer of our vain, pretentious religion. And he is sweetly loving us and giving us a peace beyond understanding. People are praying, I said. Uh, we sent out a prayer calling uh, to fill up a 24-hour round-the-clock prayer time. We filled that up within just a few hours. Uh, personally, God is meeting me, I said in a personal way. I sense his presence with a peace that is beyond understanding. And then on that Sunday, um, that previous Sunday, I taught a message in Luke chapter 8 called Crisis Faith. And really interesting. Yeah, I know what you're thinking. Chapter 8 in Luke? We're only at 17. Maybe you weren't thinking that, but I was thinking that with you. And I just think, you know, I thank God that we had a chance to really go through it in depth because I have enjoyed the whole year and I have found how relevant it has always been and that God has always got a word. By the way, it is interesting when you go through the gospels, inevitably you deal with every subject. Did you know that? And sometimes you deal with subjects over and over and over again. And do you know why you hear them over and over again? because we need to hear them over and over again. And so when you say, well, I already heard that message. Oh, no, you didn't. You have to hear it again, and you have to hear it again. And somewhere along the line, it begins to sink into your heart and becomes part of your person. And that's my desire for you, is that the Word of God becomes part of who you are. 
We know that we're nearing the time of Christ's return. I can feel it in my own bones. But whether or not he comes for me or I go for him, this is what I know. Every time you talk about prophecy, it's always in the context of being ready, of being ready. And truly, we should be ready at all times. So I'm praying that if anything this year has jarred you to that, but I'm also concerned for the body of Christ because I understand the challenges that we have as believers right now living in this world. I know that we're facing things that, um, you know, we thought we'd never have to face, and we're watching things happen around us that is just insane. And I realize that if we're really going to survive during this time and persevere as believers, there's something that has to be settled in your heart, and that is what you believe about the Word of God. That has to be settled. You know, I put some time uh, back in another study, but I put this down. Never judge the Bible against the standards of this world. Always judge the world against the standard of the Bible. That is the best policy. If you want to make it as a believer, if you want to stand strong in the current age we are, you have to make that declaration of what you believe about the word of God in your life, that you're gonna allow it to teach you and that you're not gonna to try to teach it. You're gonna allow yourself just to pay attention. So with that, let's go ahead and open our Bibles to Luke chapter 17. We've come a long way in a year. We've come a long way. By the way, they're very long chapters, so if I can give a little bit of excuse there. They're very long chapters. Luke 17. Please stand with me as we read this portion here together, these first 10 verses, he, Jesus, said to his disciples, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, Forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Which of you having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him, when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat. But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards you may eat and drink? He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which you are commanded, you say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. You may be seated. Again, I want to give you context because context means everything to the text. And if I could ever teach you anything as a pastor, when you're reading the Bible, just don't take out one little verse somewhere and try to expound it. Look at the context from where you find it. Look what's going on before it. Look what's going after it. See the connections there. Uh, you know, they don't just throw thoughts out. There's a, there's a frame of mind. There's a thought. But the context of this passage, as we have seen, is that Jesus is at the end of his 
journey. He's very nearing the time when he will ascend up to Jerusalem where he will be betrayed into the hands of his adversaries. Ultimately, he will be crucified. So we're getting close to the end. And that the events that are taking place here in this chapter began back in chapter 14. It seems to have all taken place on one particular Sabbath day. And it must have been a very long day at that. We saw that it began in chapter 14 with the Pharisees finding fault with Jesus for healing a man who had a condition called dropsy, and he did it on the Sabbath in their presence. And of course, it was a setup for Jesus, looking for something they could use against him. But again, Jesus addressed them and told them in essence that God never rests, that he is compassionate, that he is gracious all the time, and that the Pharisees, while they knew the content of the law, they did not know the heart and intent of the law. In chapter 15, the Pharisees and scribes we saw found fault with Jesus because of his association with sinners and tax collectors. And in response to that criticism, Jesus offered them three parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. And they all emphasized the joy of all heaven when just one sinner repents and is reconciled to God. And it's such a beautiful story in those stories. But in the parable of the lost son, we saw that Jesus took a little bit farther than just the brother, who, the son who is lost and returns to his father and the joy that he has. But he went on to expound about the older brother who, of course, found tremendous fault with his father because of the grace that he had shown his wayward son. And of course, that was a picture of Jesus, of the religious leaders who were so self-righteous, they actually believed they deserved the favor of God. In chapter 16, we just came out of that last week, Jesus dealt with issues related to money and stewardship and the importance of using our worldly wealth now to invest in our eternal future then. In response to the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, they scoffed at Jesus because of their own wealth, to which Jesus offered them up another story we went over last week of the rich man and the poor man named Lazarus, how they both die, they find themselves in Haiti, that waiting place. One is waiting for his judgment and torment. The other is now comforted in what is called the bosom of Abraham as he awaits, really, the resurrection of Jesus. If you weren't here last week, I really encourage you to go back and listen to that study. But the rich man we saw who trusted in his wealth and lived lavishly and indulgently while on earth that he suffered many torments after his death in contrast to the poor man Lazarus who must have trusted Christ even though he was poor while on earth and found himself in the comfort and the favor of God in the bosom of Abraham. Now the thing I wanted to stress last week and I hope it came really clear is we're not saying that Lazarus was saved because of his poverty any more than we're saying the rich man was damned because of his wealth. That was not the point. The point is what they invested their lives in. And the point is, is who they trusted in this life. So now as we come here to chapter 10 and these first 10 verses, we're going to come to the close of this very long day. But Jesus here is going to address some issues specifically for his disciples. He's going to deal with issues of offense, of being offended, and also offend, uh, offend, uh, offending others, forgiveness toward those who offend us, increased faith to forgive more, and responsibilities and duties as a servant or a, slave, a bond slave of Christ.
So we begin here in verse 1, and he, Jesus, said to his disciples, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Now, I want to, first of all, take note here as to who Jesus is talking to. He's talking to disciples. Now, a disciple here is really in a general sense. He's talking to all those who are his followers. We're going to, he'll address the apostles later on in a few verses, but here he's talking to all who are claiming to follow after him, and he has a word for them. It's not a word here for the Pharisees and the Sadducees. No, this is my time for you who are following me, and if you're following Jesus, this is for you. If you consider yourself a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, you can take this right to home. But he, he, he deals here with the issue of offense, of offending others and being offended. Now, Jesus makes it clear here with his disciples that it is a certainty. There's no doubt at all that you're going to face stumbling blocks in your life that are going to trip you up. He says they are going to come. These things that will ensnare you, they will entrap you. You can count on it. They're going to be there. Now, the Greek word that is used there is scandalon, offense, uh, meaning offense or a stumbling stone, but it describes any hindrance that causes anyone else to fall into sin, whether through temptation or through false teaching. But Jesus wants you to know it's a certainty that while we are going to live out our lives as his disciples here and now, there are going to be forces that are at work against us. The seeking to undermine our faith and bait us into the trap of sin. Now, we know who those adversaries are right offhand. We know the devil, of course. We know the world and all of its lust and its passions, but as well our own flesh that tends to go off in its own direction. There is going to be stumbling blocks. You all understand that, right? So the fact that you have stumbling blocks should not shock any one of you. Jesus makes sure you know, yeah, it's going to happen. But he says, but woe to him through whom they come. Because it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Now, Jesus says, woe. And when Jesus says, woe, you go, whoa. Whoa. Pay attention. But he addresses offenders. Those who will be used to bait others in a trap of sin. Essentially, Jesus is saying, people are going to take the bait, but woe to you if you're the one setting the hook. People are going to try to trip you up, but woe to those who put the stumbling block in your path. Now, there's a lot of ways that we know we can affect other people and actually bait them into sin. We can do it through false teaching. We can do it by encouraging their compromises and feeding on their worldly lust. We can abuse our liberties and cause others to sin. We can poison others with our bitterness, with our hatred. We can promote division. We can have attitudes of gossip and slander and hatred. But I want you to take note here how Jesus still takes sin seriously. It's still a serious issue. And it should always be a serious issue with a disciple. 
It should never be something we consider light or casual relationship to God. Oh, we love being forgiven of sin, but he's giving us the safeguards of not sinning. Why? Because sin hurts you. It destroys people. It destroys everything that God makes good. When we think, well, God's just trying to make sure my life is miserable. Oh, no, he's not. He's trying to save you from something that would hurt you, something that would destroy you, something that would destroy your marriage. See, sometimes we don't get the right idea about sin. Why does God hate it? Why does he hate it so much? Because it hurts, it destroys, it kills When God sent his son, Jesus, he didn't send him down here to comfort us in our sin, but to deliver us from the power of sin and death. That's why he sent him. He provided the means of absolute forgiveness and grace so that we can have power over sin. So yeah, while we live life in these earthly bodies, yeah, we're gonna sin. In fact, you know, John says, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar, the truth isn't in you. You're, you sinners. I'm looking at you. Yeah, I know you sin. Yeah, we we do know we sin. In fact, 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm so thrilled with that. But sin is still a serious issue. It's something you say, I don't care about it anymore. Grace covers all that. Listen, no, it does care. And especially how we affect one another with sin. But Jesus here gives this clear warning to offenders who bait the trap for others to sin. He says it would be preferable. It would be better to have a millstone hung around your neck and thrown into the sea than to cause a little one to sin. Now, I've got a picture right up here. There's what you call a millstone right there from Capernaum. I took a picture when we were there some years back. But it's this heavy, flat stone that's used to grind grain. They would tie an oxen up to it, and they would go around and around, and it would crush the grain. Now, in Matthew 18, verse 6, Jesus uses the same kind of illustration, again, in the context of causing children or young children to stumble into sin. But the reason is, is because children, we know, are much more innocent, and they're trusting in nature. They're vulnerable to abuse and hurts, and have, that have long-term effects upon their lives, And so God holds parents, other adults responsible to the influence they have on their children so that they might grow up to trust the Lord and grow in their trust of the Lord. Now, the same can be said of young believers, new believers. I love being around new believers. I I just, for me, we have several of them in our church that I get to hang around a lot right now. And I love the freshness. I love the the eagerness, the hunger, the desire that I see in them to learn and feed off of the word of God. It is the greatest thing in the world. The one thing I'm so careful for, I don't wanna do anything that would lead them astray. I don't wanna do anything that would affect them in a wrong way. You see, this is one of the indictments that Jesus had against the religious leaders. Why? Because they used their influence to turn others away from faith in Christ. In Matthew 23, 15, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land and make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. That's a pretty strong statement. See, in other words, you're not working to bless others, you're hurting others. And the point, Jesus is saying, it would be better to die 
to even die a, a horrible death than to trip one of these little ones up and to sin. It would be better for you as a disciple or leader, a pastor, a teacher to die than to lead someone astray because of your actions. And so Jesus says, quite frankly, be on guard, verse three. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. He's saying, watch yourselves. Now, if you see a brother caught in sin, he's saying, rebuke him, go after him. And if he repents, then forgive him, bring him back. Now, now again, people, this not only speaks to the seriousness of sin in our lives, but it also talks about the responsibility we have to others if we see sin in their lives. And I realize this flies in the face of our culture, you know, that says, hey, man, we're not our brother's keepers. Oh, yes, you are. Biblically, we are our brother's keeper. Don't anyone lie to you about that. We are each other's business. If you're a believer, you're my business, and I'm your business. What happens to you affects the whole. It's so critically important. Now, Jesus isn't encouraging here fault-finding. He's not encouraging nitpicking or, you know, being those really harsh, judgmental people who beat other people up with their words. No, he's talking about loving concern by which you reach out to someone who's in danger to spare them from the danger. That if you see a brother or a sister who are stumbling in sin, getting caught in a trap, that you rebuke them, you admonish them, and you, you know, to bring them back. Why? Because again, sin destroys. Rebuke and love, not in judgment, knowing that it could be you who is the one who's entrapped. It could be you who's the one who's in trouble. Galatians 6.1 says, brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Proverbs 27.5, better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. I like that one. Proverbs 9, 8, do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. You want to be wise? Proverbs 17, 10, a rebuke goes deeper into one who has understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. Listen, if we're going to love each other, it means we watch out for each other. If we really love the family of God, we're not going to sit idly by and watch them walk into something that we know is going to really hurt or destroy them without warning them. And like it or not, people, we are both influencers and influenced by others, either good or bad. And so you have to really ask yourself sometimes, am I really good for others? I mean, are others really, are my brothers and sisters better off because they're with me? Are they really better off because of my influence in their life? Or am I a detriment to their faith because of my, the way I live my life? Do we encourage the faith of others? 1 John 2.10 says, the one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. Love com compels us to speak the truth in love. Then he gives the responsibility if you happen to be the one who's offended. That is this, forgiveness. Forgive those who offend you when you see the offense. If you rebuke your brother and they repent, you know, they turn from their sin, it's a wonderful thing, but always forgive them. 
But then Jesus takes it another step further, he says in verse 4, and he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Many years ago, there was a really stupid movie called Love Story that had one of the stupidest lines ever where she said, love means never having to say you're sorry. That's pure nuttiness. Man, sorry. Sorry is something we live with. Why? Because we need it. We need, we, we're sorry people. You see, he, Jesus says, if that person sins against you seven times a day, now we, man, hey, you know, do it once to me, man. You do twice. He says seven a day. Now, by that, we know this is that seven, of course, is a perfect number. So he's not saying when you get to number eight, forget it. That's not what he's saying. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Um, forget you, man. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, you keep on forgiving. In another context, in Matthew 18, Peter thought he was impressing Christ by saying, we should forgive seven times. To which Jesus corrects him and says, no, 70 times seven. So I know what you're all thinking. That's 490 times. One, two, got a little chart here. Get 491, man, you're in toast now. Yes, you've done it. Man, I, you know, three strikes you're out, listen, only applies in baseball. Not in the faith. Not in the faith. There is no three strikes you're out when it comes to forgiving others. We keep on forgiving. There's never a time to stop. I love 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. And notice this one part here. You know, love is patient, love is kind and all that. But it goes on to say, love is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered. Wait a minute, man. I got a big list. You know what he's saying to do with the list? Rip it up. Get rid of it. Have nothing to do with it. Because I don't know about you all, but I know this. I have sinned and repented so many times over these years. I passed 490 a long, long time ago. And God is always been gracious and merciful to forgive me because that's the God that he is. We forgive because unforgiveness is a trap that destroys us. I want you to understand that unforgiveness and bitterness will destroy us as easily or more severely than the offenses we are suffer at the hands of others. It's just true. The fundamental law of the kingdom of God is this, it's love. That we never allow the wrongs done to us cause us to do wrong in return. We don't make the sin of others cause us to sin. We keep ourselves from it. None of us have suffered ever as much as the offense by which we brought in the Lord. So it's not surprising when you go through the gospels that Jesus has a lot to say about forgiveness. In fact, he puts it into the Lord's prayer and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Notice there's no if there. It's just as we have, it's the assumed thing. But then Jesus goes on to say something interesting. He says, for if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your father will not forgive your transgressions. It kind of puts a new spin on things, doesn't it? 
Let me ask you, are you holding on to unforgiveness? Is there bitterness in your life toward anyone that is just poisoning your soul? Because that's exactly what it's doing. A man in conversation with John Wesley once made the comment, he says, I never forgive. Wesley wisely replied, replied, then, sir, I hope you never sin. Forgive, forgive, and forgive some more. Be as gracious and forgiving to others as God has been with you. To this, we've learned in verse verse 5 here, the apostles, this is the apostles, not the b-apostles, but the apostles, the, the 12, they said to the Lord, increase our faith. Again, context. This is a response to Jesus' teaching on forgiveness. The disciples understand what Jesus is saying. They understand the gravity of what he is saying and this thing to forgive people over and over again, but how can we possibly do it? How can we possibly do it? They know it's not natural. They know it's not something you're going to get on your own. No, it's going to require faith. Faith. And faith, people, is so important to God. In fact, Hebrews eleven six 6 says, Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. But I want to talk about faith for just a second. Because I think sometimes we have a real twisted view of what biblical faith is. But biblical faith is not faith and faith. The world says it all the time. Keep the faith, man. Keep the faith. Well, faith in what? We don't have faith in faith. He's not saying have faith in yourself or faith in your abilities and talents or faith in your friends or in the government. Of course not the government. But faith in your positive attitudes or, or optimism or your hopes and all your dreams. It's like just hope and, and have your dreams will come true. Faith isn't coming up with some great idea and saying, God, you've got to do this and giving him some great counsel. That's not faith. You see, God himself is the object of our faith and it's his power that we seek in our life. I put it like this. Biblical faith is believing and walking in the truth about God and trusting in his word in such a way that we are provoked to act and live out our lives in accordance with the will and purposes of God. Let me say that again. Biblical faith is believing and walking in the truth about God and trusting in his word in such a way that we are provoked to act and live out our lives in accordance with the will and purpose of God. You see, biblical faith, that's why this is what you need faith in prayer. It aligns our hearts in agreement to the, the purposes and will of God. For instance, when we're told to pray in the name of Jesus, Jesus, you can ask for anything, it'll be given to you. But what are you saying when you ask in the name of Jesus, you're acting, asking in accordance with Jesus himself, with who he is, his nature, his purpose, his plans, his fullness. See, there's a lot of bad theology out there that seeks to make God the servant and make us the master to make him out to be kind of the genie in the bottle who is there to serve my will and my purpose. But the Bible makes it really clear. We're going to see it in just a second very clear. Jesus is the master, and we're the servants. Verse 6, And the Lord said, If you had faith 
like a mustard seed. You would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted into the sea, and it would obey you. Jesus said, just a little bit of faith, just a small little bit, has power to do impossible things. In Matthew 21, 21, Jesus uses a similar analogy of having faith to move mountains. But remember, it's the power of God, not the faith that uproots the trees and moves the mountains. But faith has to be present for God to work. We don't need or see a lot of mountains moved, literally. But I'll tell you something, I've seen mountains moved in my life. I've seen mountains moved in your lives. I've watched great things happen when faith is enacted. And again, this is a literal response to the apostles pleading, Lord, increase our faith. The mulberry tree is a strong tree. It grows about 25 feet tall, but it has very deep roots. And basically, it takes extraordinary power to uproot a mulberry tree and transplant it. If you have deep-seated root unforgiveness and bitterness in your life, Faith and only faith has the power by the Holy Spirit to pluck that out and just cleanse you. Hebrews 12, 15, see that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled. Faith has power to remove deep roots of sin. Which of you, Jesus says in Verse 7, having a slave plowing and tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat. But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink and after you may eat and drink? He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So too, when you do all the things which you are commanded you, say we are unworthy slaves we have done only that which we ought to have done. Now, Jesus talks here about service, and he uses the slave-master relationship. Now, for us, sometimes the issue of slavery is confusing, but it wasn't as much so in that culture. See, at the particular time, the Roman Greco world, one-third of the population were those who were considered slaves, Another third of the population were those who were once slaves but had been freed. So they were called freedmen, but they're slaves who were set free, all kinds of conditions for it. But essentially, slavery was a means by which people could pay off their debts and obligations. Sometimes it was punitive. But literally, when you became a slave of someone else, you yielded all your rights to your master. They, you become their property for however long that term is. And so there's this clear distinction between who is the master and who is the slave and the obligation of the servant or the slave to obey the master. That old wise singer, Bob Dylan, <laughs> many years back wrote this song, Everybody's Got to Serve Somebody. You guys remember that, anybody? Please, somebody's got to remember that. <laughs> it may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Yeah. He was, yeah, he was, he was awful singer, but man, that was a great song. But the idea is, is here's being a doulos and a doulos is a servant. It's a willing servant. 
one who willingly gives up their own will and rights to serve the will of the master. When Paul talks about himself, he describes himself as a doulos, a willing servant. He says, I am now sold out under the command of my master, set apart to serve his will and his purpose. You see, a disciple is in essence a bondservant. Did you guys know that? Did you know that you're supposed to be bondservants to him and that kind of order? And so Jesus asked these kind of rhetorical questions regarding the slave-master relationship. Which of you having a slave plowing and tending sheep will say to him when he comes in from the field, come immediately and sit down and eat? Does the master serve the slave? The answer is no. But will he not say, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourselves and serve me while I eat and drink? And after you may eat and drink, does the slave serve the master before or after he thinks about himself? The answer is, well, before. Does he thank the slave, the master, because he did the things he was commanded to do? No. Why? Because he was just doing what he was expected to do. So Jesus says in verse 10, so you too... When you do all these things which have commanded you, saying we are unworthy slaves, we have done only that which ought to have been done. Slaves do the will of the master simply because that's what's expected of them. It's just expected, not for brownie points, not to get some old, you know, some great, you know, pat in the back, but disciples know who we are. We have a master, and he's the leader and we're the followers. Did you guys know that? We follow him. Now, there are two extremes that, to avoid in our duties as disciples. One is merely doing our duty in a slavish way because we have to. Man, I've got to serve God today. The other is saying, man, I can't wait to do it because I'm going to get something good later. No, we do it because he's simply the master. And we're the servant. The servant doesn't expect the master to thank him for what he's doing when he's expected. Jesus is saying here that when we are his disciples, when we rebuke, when we forgive, when we love, when we serve others, it should never be considered something extraordinary. This is what we're supposed to do as disciples. It's just who we are. It's what he's called us to do. It's kind of interesting. We always talk about things we need to pray about. Do you know how many things you don't have to pray about? Consider this. Is it God's will for you to love your family? You don't have to pray about that. You might have some stinkers in your family, but it's still the truth. You still got to love them. Is it God's will for you to love your enemies? God, do you want me to love that person? Oh, yes, emphatically. We know that because that's what Jesus taught. You know, is it God's will for you to use your gifts for the Lord? There's no question about that. You don't need to pray about it. Yes. You might need to seek out where he's going to use it, how he's going to use it, but yeah, he wants you to use your gifts. Is it God's will for you to, to give of your material wealth, to invest in the kingdom? Of course it is. You don't have God, is it your will that I give money to you? Huh. You know that it is. You just know. Is it your will, God, that I give to those who are in need? You don't need to pray. You may need to pray wisdom about which people or whatever, but listen, there's so many things we don't have to pray about. You know, is it God, is it your will that I pray every night? <laughs> of course it is. Pray all the time. Is it God's will that you obey him in everything? Yes, of course. Is it God's will for you to forgive everyone who has wronged you? Yes, 
It's always. You don't need to pray. Oh, God. These people have called me so much. Do you want me to forgive them? Don't even pray it. Just do it. Just forgive. We don't need to pray about those things. Why? Because we know these are things Jesus clearly taught us. And I love this passage. We talk about it because it just expresses the gospel so well. But Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Notice the cause and effect relationship here. The cause, we don't do good works to earn our salvation. We do good works because we are saved. And it's always in that order. We were created to serve. We were created to worship. And here's something beautiful that just blows me away. Yeah, you don't expect our master to thank you, but you know what Jesus said back in chapter 12? He said, blessed are those slaves, same word, doulos, whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at a table and come and wait on them. He says, this is so precious. We don't deserve it. But when that time comes, he's going he's gonna to serve us. We don't do it for that. We serve him now just because that's what we do. But even though he, he owes us nothing, he will gird himself and serve us. I wanted to read this to you. I came across it this week in A.W. Tozer's book, uh, Cloud by Day, Fire by Night, where he gives this contrast between faith and unbelief. He says this, that, that unbelief hinders the operation of spiritual laws, laws of the kingdom. And if we do not believe God in everything, then we are hindering the laws of God as he intended them. If I'm not believing God, I'm not being led by God. My unbelief will cloud what God wants to do in my life. Well, how can we identify this term unbelief? Unbelief says that this is for someone else, somewhere else, and at some other time. Unbelief deflects correction and says it doesn't apply to me. Unbelief says, some other time, not now. Yes, that, I know what God says, but certain things have changed, so it doesn't apply to us today. They believe in what God says, but not for right now. Unbelief says, some other place, but not here. Yes, I believe the promises of God, but they're not for here. We're living in a different place, and the promises of God do not really apply Unbelief says, someone else, not me. Yes, I believe the promises of God, but they're really not for me. Certain promises don't apply to me, so I can get out of obeying the Lord. Unbelief believes all the promises conditionally for someone else, somewhere else, and some other time. They believe that God says is true, but it isn't relevant for them and their lives. Well, how does faith differ from unbelief? Faith says... If some other time, then why not now? And that's an important thing. If God said it for some other time, why doesn't it apply now? Faith says, if some other place, then why not here? If it is good wherever, then why shouldn't it be good here where I am standing? Faith says, if someone else says, that if, if, if someone else, uh, then why not me? Whatever God has done for anybody else, God can certainly do for me. 
Faith takes the I out of the equation and brings God back to the center. If God said it, then it must be true. And if it's true, it must be true now. And if it's true for someone else, it must be true for me also and true here as well. You see, basically, he's saying there's two kinds of Christians, those who believe the truth and those who don't believe the truth. There's some who really say, yeah, I get it what Jesus is saying to everybody else, but you know, that's, that's too idealistic. It's for somebody else. No, Jesus is talking to you. He's talking to you. And he's talking about what it means to really be a follower of Christ. And here's the questions. Let me ask you, are you growing in your faith? Is your faith increasing? Are you finding out that you're having greater power to do things in your life? Or are you simply settled in some stale, powerless religion? You know, as disciples, I mean, are you offending others and stumbling others with the way you handle your truth or your faith, or are you seeking to edify others and build up their faith? Are you really good for others? Are they good for you? Do you forgive those who have wronged you and offended you? Are you holding on to bitterness and hoping to get even with someone? Are you seeking to be an active servant of Christ, or are you striving to be his master? Are you seeking to follow after Christ or are you trying to get him to follow after you? Are you seeking his will for his life or are you seeking him to serve your will? And those are the questions that every disciple has to say. God, I just, I want to really, really follow after you. You know, I'm saying this because I started here. It's, we believe the word of God and if you believe it, you say, okay, God, I really want, I really need to be this person. And only faith can do it. Only faith. So what I'm praying for you is that God increases your faith. Our faith. So as disciples, we just doing what disciples do. No big deal. We're just doing what a disciple does. And we just live for Jesus and make a difference in the world. Father, I thank you this morning. I thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you, God, for the many things that you have been teaching us through your word. And Lord, I'm so aware of the difficulty in the day that we live Father, we're constantly just having to fight off the lies, the deceptions. And so I thank you, Lord, for every person who loves you, every person, Lord, born again, coming to you. And I pray even this morning, if there's anyone in this room who's never given their life to you, that Jesus today would be their day. Lord, we pray that you would, in fact, Lord, make us a significant people in this age. That we would, Lord, be salt and light. That we would be those, Lord, who really, truly live what we believe to be true. God, we ask you to change us. We know, Father, how we fall short. I'm sure every one of us here, God, we can sit here and go, oh man, ah, oh, this hurts. 
But God, we know you love us. And you don't say these things to us because you want to hurt us. You say them to us because you want us to know your love and to share your love and to spare us from all the grief that comes by sin in our lives. I thank you, Lord, just for your presence here this morning. And I pray, Father, that even as we worship you, that we would do so, Lord, just with a heart that is yielded, acknowledging you as the master and we as the servant. Thank you, Lord. If you're here this morning and you need prayer at all, you can we have folks up here to pray with you, no matter what the condition is or what the need is. It's always good. You know, maybe this morning it's like, I just need to increase my faith. I think you should all be praying that, really. I know I am. It's not something that I can say, oh, you people. No, this is me. comes back. My faith's got to increase if I'm going to make it. Maybe you need to come down and spend some time at the altar. certainly open for you, but just allow the Lord to minister to you today. Let's stand together.